The scripture reading today is taken from Titus 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And as you're seated, let me again add my welcome to the welcomes you've already heard uh, this morning. If you're new here and you actually don't have a Bible, we'd love to also give you a Bible. Uh, So just put your hand up nice and high uh, if you need one, and one of our Connect team will find you, and they will connect you and and give you a Bible so you can follow along uh, with our gathering this morning. Um, Well, before we jump into the Word of God, uh, we need to come to the Lord in prayer and ask for His help. Uh, The unpacking of God's Word, the hearing of God's Word, all these things, they only bear fruit as His Holy Spirit causes these words to be impacted in our lives uh, and to take shape and and to, to change us and to fill us with hope and faith in Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Ask him for that help now before we begin. God, we come to you and we come confidently in the name of Jesus Christ, knowing that you love us. You really do. You long for us to to know more of you. And because of that, Lord, we can ask with confidence that you would help us now to see Jesus Christ. You'd help us to see who we really are and what our needs in this world really are before you and how you've met those needs and brought salvation to us through your Son. God, would you give me power by the Holy Spirit to uh, take my frailty and my fumbling words and use them for something good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like we said, though it's still November, it's the first Sunday of Advent. It doesn't happen very often, uh, but it's happening this year. And this Advent season, we're going to look at the text that we just read, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, uh, each Sunday that we preach through Advent. We're not going to preach through the text, actually, uh, each Sunday. One of the Sundays, um, Pastor Brett from the South Vancouver location is going to come and and, uh, give us a sermon about the vision of the Christ City Church and kind of the Advent campaign and what's going on. It's going to be a time for us to remember how we're partnered so closely with some other churches that are close by to us. We're going to rejoice in that. But for the three Sundays that were in Advent and in the text explicitly, it'll be Titus 2, 11 to 14. And this is a really beautiful text, all about the grace of God appearing to us, about the arrival of God's grace, which is all about Advent. Advent means arrival. And Jesus, as a salvation of God, has arrived, arrived for us. He's brought salvation for humankind. And if you didn't know, uh, Jesus' arrival is what Christmas is all about. So, as much as you like Elf, uh, it's not about Will Ferrell. Uh, As much as you like Home Alone, it's not about that either. As much as you like Christmas uh, baking and shopping and the Christmas lights, none of those things are what Christmas is about. It's about Jesus. The reason for the season, in the corny phrase, is truly Jesus Christ. And this past Friday, I was reminded of this when my daughter and I uh, were out killing some time, um, waiting for the aquarium to open, and we were walking around Stanley Park, and there uh, at the Christmas train, the firemen were setting up their Christmas light display this year. 
and it wasn't open yet. It opens this week. Uh, and even though it wasn't open, we walked up and Pepper wanted to go inside and the firemen saw her and they said, well, we can take you around. And so a retired fireman brought us through the whole Christmas display. It was beautiful. He's such a kind man. And as we're walking through, I noticed, of course, being a pastor, the large Advent display. This really beautiful life-size Advent display. And Pepper went, tried to pick up baby Jesus. And like, don't do that. Um, but uh, but there, there it was. And, and we're talking, and he said something pretty interesting. I don't think he was, I didn't get the impression that he was a Christian man, but he said, you know, we wouldn't really be doing anything if it wasn't for the truth of Jesus. It wasn't for Advent. He says, this is what it's all about. And he's right. He's profoundly right. Even if you aren't really that interested in Jesus, the best things about Christmas that all of us enjoy are only because of his first Advent. Whether that's gift giving, charity, uh, or walking past the Salvation Army man uh, ringing his bell. You know, it's become so common for us probably today. Uh, the charity is so common, some of us just walk right past. Hospitality towards friends and family and neighbors and those who are in need. All this good that we enjoy that characterize the Christmas season, they're only there because they're faint echoes of the first gift of Christmas. They're only there because God himself, at a certain point in history, became a man. Was born in humility and weakness in a manger for us and for our salvation. To give salvation even to the least deserving. And it's the good gift of Jesus that we celebrate during Advent season. That's what this season's all about. And this morning, I realize that Advent's probably a time that's full of conflicting emotions for you uh, if you're a normal human being living in this world because the reality of your day-to-day life and the suffering that you face, maybe the broken relationships you, you experience and maybe the, the conversations you're hoping to avoid when you gather together with friends and family, they're kind of contrasted, aren't they, with the hope that we have in Christmas. And maybe the hope that we have in Christmas even makes the pain of those moments more profound. Because you realize all that is broken right now. And I want to say to you, if that's you, that we celebrate Advent, not because it makes us feel bad, but because it gives us hope in our suffering. It's full of hope for those of us in our brokenness and our suffering. And no matter how bitterly dark your suffering or the suffering of this world, the hope of Advent is that Jesus can meet you in it with love and with grace with salvation. So with all that said, my prayer this morning, as you look at Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, my prayer is that we would leave this place more clear about how great our need is for Jesus Christ. More clear about what the problem is that, that made Jesus have to come in the first place for us and for our salvation. And that we would know this hope that we can have because of Jesus Christ. Leave with a greater confidence that God is doing something in this world that's profoundly good through his son Jesus, but because of his first coming. So we have two points kind of coming out of that prayer, kind of coming out of these things that we've been talking about already. Point one, we're going to look at our great need. And point two, we're simply going to look at our great savior. We're going to look at verse 11 and verse 14 this week, and then we'll look at some of the other verses in the following weeks. All right, so look at our first point then, our great need, and read verse 11 with me. For the grace 
of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. As we jump into this text, I want to share just a brief word of context because we're in a, a new letter, one that we've not been in before ever at Christ City Church. It's the book of Titus. And the apostle Paul, who is really this first missionary church planter, sharing the good news about Jesus far and wide, he's the one who wrote this letter and he wrote it to a man named Titus, who was a pastor in Crete. He was a pastor in Crete and Paul wrote to Titus because Titus was a pastor who needed some help. There was a great need for the church in Crete to be put in order. Just look at 1 verse 5 in the letter. This is why I left you in Crete, so you might put what remained into order. And as you unpack the book of Titus, you realize that the, the disorder the church faced wasn't merely organizational, it was moral disorder. You see, we know that Jesus truly saves the most broken sinners. That's what Paul preached. That's what Titus was preaching. But that doesn't mean that we perfectly live like Jesus overnight. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know that to be true. And the disorder the Cretans faced was because of lingering sin that was in their lives. You can see what I mean in actually one of the more shocking, I think it's kind of funny if it wasn't so shocking, uh, verses that are in the Bible in the New Testament. And that's in First Tit- or Titus chapter 1, verses 12 to 13. Paul writes about this problem in Crete. He says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And then Paul says, This, this testimony is true. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. Thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> Therefore, rebuke them sharply, Paul tells Titus. And Paul encourages Titus, you got to put that moral chaos into order. And you got to do it by rebuking sin, by teaching what is good according to God's revealed word in the Bible, and by encouraging the Cretans to good works. And the question is, why could Paul be so confident that, that, that Paul or that Titus would have success in these labors? Right? Like, like, if that's been the problem and the, the prophets of Crete even say how significant the issue is, then, then why could Paul say, hey, do this good work. It's hopeful. There's a good direction. You can have good fruit. It's going to go somewhere. It's because of verse 11. Verse 11 is the reason for this good work. And it says this, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. The good news is that Jesus Christ has been born. And because he's been born, good is finally made possible in human history. Change is possible in our lives because Jesus has come. Cretans don't have to stay stuck in their personal and cultural sins that bring chaos and disorder in this world anymore. Because Jesus was born. Because the grace of God has appeared. And what is grace? Such a common churchy word, isn't it? Well, grace is God's intention to bless his creatures as a gift of love. It's a gift. I think it's true that, that we as adults sometimes forget how gifts work, right? But kids don't. Kids don't. So, so I want to give you an experiment to try just to, to see this. This Christmas, whatever kids are in your life, whether they're nephews or nieces or your own children or grandchildren, try to make them perform a whole bunch of tasks and chores prior to opening presents on Christmas Day. How's that going to work for you? It's going to work poorly because kids know what gifts are. And they know that they didn't have to work to earn those gifts. They just had to show up at Christmas morning to have those gifts. Like, come on, mom and dad, this isn't how it works. Grandpa, grandma, auntie, uncle, this is not how this works. 
A gift is a gift. It's just given. And God's gift of grace is the same to us. We receive it because of God's generosity to bless us in our mess as a gift. It's not because we've cleaned ourselves up. It's not because we've somehow earned it and caught his attention by our good behavior. And the reason Titus could bring order through his teaching is because of verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. His grace appeared bringing salvation. That's interesting. God's grace did something, isn't it? You see that? God's grace bringing salvation. It brought salvation for all people. And salvation is an interesting word. Salvation means to be saved from something. In the history of the Bible, the, the famous saving event was God's people in Egypt, right? In slavery, slave from, uh, uh, freed from the slavery in Egypt. Um, in my own family history, in uh, May 5th, 1945, my grandparents experienced uh, freedom on Dutch Liberation Day when the Allied soldiers came in and freed from Nazi occupation. But Paul says God's grace appeared bringing salvation for all people. That's interesting. That leads to the question, what is it that all people need saving from? What is it that's a bigger problem than Egyptian slavery or Nazi, Nazi occupation? That's the key question here. I want to unpack that with you for just a moment. I think it's true that today people think of salvation as freedom from various obstacles to our self-expression. And that's common today. It's common today for people around us and in this world and ourselves to think of salvation as um, being free to pursue our desires and our wants in whatever ways we think will make us happy. And we think that's the salvation we need. If I can just pursue what I want in the ways that I think will make me happy, that's what I need. And yet, and yet today, in perhaps the most free society the world has ever seen, are we happy? No. In fact, as we pursued our inner desires freely, our communities haven't become closer but more fragmented. And our interests aren't more oriented toward the good of others, but less. I was talking to a friend here in the congregation um, last weekend about how Canadian blood services are going to have to start buying blood because people are so far removed from a previous generation that was more shaped by Christian generosity and don't consider the needs of others ahead of their own. Anxiety and depression aren't decreasing but increasing today. And in fact, this generation doesn't rate our personal happiness higher than previous generations but lower. Why is this? I think it's because our most fundamental need isn't freedom to pursue our desires, but freedom from the sinful desires that control us. Our greatest need isn't freedom to pursue our desires, but freedom from the sinful desires that control us. And that was the problem the Cretans had too. Paul told Titus to put things in order because the thing bringing ruin on the Cretans was their sin. But Jesus brings the possibility of true freedom, of growth, of transformation in our hearts. 
Not freedom for living however we want, but freedom to live toward what is truly good in this world. To live toward something that we can build and construct that will last for eternity to the glory of God. That's true freedom. Freedom to live for something wonderful. Freedom to life in relationship with God and joyful obedience to his commands. And Paul emphasized the grace of Jesus Christ bringing salvation because sin was the thing the Cretans and that you and that I need saving from. You know, I'm wondering this morning if this is personal for you. It's personal for me. I'm wondering how much you've noticed your own slavery to sin. I'm wondering if, if there's a way that that you know this good that, that you idealize and you think that's a wonderful thing to live for, but then when you actually live your life, you don't live toward the good. I'm wondering if you're really honest, if you choose to pursue what is wicked and evil, and you know that. I wonder if you were able to see your life and your words and your actions public and private lived out in someone else's life. What you'd think of that person? To kind of get downwind of yourself and kind of see how, how it's really going. Maybe you would relate then so well to Paul talking about his life of slavery and sin when he said, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. See, our problem isn't that we need greater freedom from inhibitions to our self-expression. Our problem is our self-expression. <laughs> problem is ourselves. So we keep choosing to obey our heart's sinful desires. As someone once so wisely said, the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. And it gets worse because the Bible teaches there's a holy God who made us and who holds us accountable to our choices to pursue what is wrong. It gets worse before it gets better. Paul in the book of Romans, he's crystal clear about this. And he writes in Romans 1, 18 to 32, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. This is the bad news. Apart from Jesus coming into the world as Savior, we live in the darkness of our slavery to sin. We deserve God's eternal judgment. The biblical word for that is hell. But Christ City Christmas is profoundly good news because the grace of God has appeared. Because the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people because Jesus Christ has come to save us from our sin. Praise God. 
Listen to the words of the angel who spoke to Joseph before Jesus was born in Matthew 121. He said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. See, in the darkness of our sin and in the generations of people enslaved to sin, Jesus Christ was born as a savior to save us from sin. And how has he accomplished his work? If that's the need, that's the problem, Jesus Christ has come as savior, then what is it that he's done? How has he fixed what's wrong? We'll look at our second point in verse 14, our great savior, and let's read it together. Jesus, Paul writes, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. See, Paul says two things here. He says, Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us from our sin. That's the good news of the gospel. Praise God. And the first part about that, we're going to unpack now. We'll unpack them in, in, in turn. But first, let's look at that, that first part. Jesus redeems us from lawlessness. What is lawlessness? That's the first part we need to understand, right? I, I think that word, maybe if you're like me, I love Westerns. It makes me think of the Wild West, right? A lawless world where we all kind of do what we want. Or you can think of maybe an anarchist nation where the government has collapsed and things are just decaying right? That's lawlessness. And lawlessness is a fitting description for us in our slavery to sin because sin is lawlessness, John says. Sin is lawlessness. It's a rejection of of a good and glorious and loving God who has given us good instructions as our creator who knows how life works best. We said, no, thank you. Not according to your law, but according to what I want. And sin is lawlessness. It's a rejection of God and his rule in our lives. And in fact, the Bible's whole story could be told as the the story of lawlessness and redemption. (laughs) God created this world in love, created you and I in love. But the beginning of the story, we read that there was a fall and and a turning away from God or from man in obedience to God towards lawlessness. And the whole story of the Bible then is God's pursuit of this lawless people to rescue us in his love and bring us back into relationship with himself. In the beginning of that story, in Genesis 1, 26 to 27, we read that Adam and Eve, the first human couple, that they were created in God's image. It wasn't supposed to be a lawless world when they were made. Because to be created in God's image means to to live so intimately connected to God in relationship with him that we would live in this world like little mirrors. Wherever we go, we're mirrors of God and his good character. Mirrors of God representing him and showing him forth to everyone else around us. We'd be like kids that just so love their parent. They can't help imitating that parent in their interactions and their life in this world. It's what God wanted for us. But instead... The apple fell far from the tree. Adam and Eve chose to disobey God. And ever since then, we don't naturally imitate God, but we imitate Adam and Eve's lawlessness. We reflect the DNA of our first parents. But the good news is that God 
did not let this continue. And even from the beginning, he always planned that the second person of the Trinity, that God himself would one day be born as a human being in a manger, that Jesus Christ would come. And at the right time, the God-man was born, (laughs) fully God and fully man, Jesus Christ in that manger, so that as Paul said in Titus 2.14, he could give himself for us, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us all to redeem us from all lawlessness. See, Jesus Christ gave himself for us because the punishment for sin, as we've already read, is death. But Jesus Christ willingly, in breathtaking humility and love, died the human death that we deserved in our place. He took the human punishment for sin that we deserved on his own shoulders. It's God the judge of all, putting himself in the position of the judged and taking the judgment for us. And he died on that cross. But death couldn't hold Jesus. He was resurrected as the conqueror of sin and of death. And that's good news. Good news, of course, for Jesus, right? He's the one who got resurrected. But the question we could ask is, how do we get in on that action? How do I become part of this good news of Jesus conquering sin and death? We get in on it because when we trust in Jesus, God unites us with Jesus so that Jesus' death counts for our death. So that Jesus' life counts for our life. Look at how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 to 8. Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ We're baptized into his death. So you're joined with Jesus. You're you're united with him in his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness, newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So Jesus Death counts for our death. We're united with him and and brought to death on that cross with him. But through his resurrection and faith in him, we're we're brought to new life in Jesus Christ. A new life that begins to work in us now, transforming our desires and our heart, but a new life that will be unable to be stopped and that will continue until we are resurrected physically with Jesus Christ when he returns. We know that that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. The slavery could be broken so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who's died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. You see, when we put our trust in our gracious Savior, Jesus Christ, All that was corrupted because of our first parents' sin and that's corrupted in us, in Adam and Eve, that's put to death in Jesus. So the perfect image of God in us could be restored to new life through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. So I I have a favorite nerdy illustration for what we've been talking about. And it's from an author who wrote a book. 
1,700 years ago. His name was Athanasius. And if you've not read Athanasius on the Incarnation, give it a try, give it a read. There's an excellent version of it that has a, a, a great introduction by C.S. Lewis. Uh, you, you can read it this Christmas season. It's, it's wonderful. But he describes our salvation and, and the, the way that, that that old sinful humanity was brought to death and brought to new life through the illustration of a portrait. He talks about this portrait that, that got ruined. It, it was marred over, over time and it became corrupted and wrecked. And over time, the spills and the stains became so bad that, that it was just a wreck of its former self and it had to be redrawn. It's kind of like us in our slavery to sin, how we become so corrupted from the image of God that we were created to be. But this artist who made the portrait, he, he loves that painting. He knows the hard work that went into that painting. He doesn't want to just take the canvas and throw it out. So what he does instead is he invites the original person to come and sit again for the portrait. Jesus Christ coming into the world, the perfect image of God to redraw humankind in the image of Jesus Christ. So he could patiently rewrite humanity in the image of Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? That's the glory and the joy of our salvation in Jesus Christ. God Most High was born as a second Adam, Jesus Christ. In the manger, the beginning of a new humanity so that humanity itself could begin to be redrawn in the image of Jesus. Praise God. I think what all this means for you is is that if you're here this morning and you've been trying to change on your own, if you've been making an effort to just clean yourself up, fix your life, it's not working. There is a savior for you. His name is Jesus Christ. You can be made new and made whole as you put your faith and your trust in him. The power of sin can be broken in your life and you can begin moment by moment, little by little, to be changed to reflect him. See, Christ City, Jesus has appeared as a gift of grace for our salvation. First, to redeem us from all lawlessness, but second, to purify us to belong to him. Look at verse 14. Paul says this about Jesus. Jesus who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Now, now purifying is what we do to something to remove pollutants from that thing. We purify water uh, when we're hiking so we can drink it. We purify air when the smoke is heavy in Vancouver uh, so we can breathe it. And Jesus purifies us from sin to belong to him. See, Some of you this morning have come with this deep weight on your shoulders of, of the guilt and the shame of all that you've done. You know the stain of sin that's just so heavy in your own lives. Others of you maybe come here and it's, it's your own sin that you're aware of, but you're also aware of all the ways that the stain of sin of other people's sin has affected you. And it fills you with shame and with guilt. I think there's even others of you here who maybe just feel like you've been so associated with sinful things that that, that stain is, is just thick on you and you can't, you can't get out of it. It makes you feel polluted and maybe even worthless. And this is what sin does. It pollutes and it stains and it mars and defiles us. And it's not just that we don't feel okay about our sin and our, our guilt and our shame. 
It's that apart from the purifying work of Jesus, we aren't okay. The Bible uses the gut-wrenching picture of persistent unfaithfulness in marriage to depict the stain and the pollutant of sin. It's like in our sin, we've been endlessly cheating on God. It's the language the Bible uses. That we've had so many lovers that we've lost count. It's that we've loved what God has hated. We've drunk deeply from the well of sin and evil, and it's just in us. The question that we ask then is, how could he take us back? How could Paul say, purifies us to be his possession? How could he take us back? How could we rightly belong to him? Only if Jesus washes us clean. But if you put your trust in Jesus Christ to save you, he does wash you clean. And when your sin was stained dark red and scarlet, his blood shed on the cross can wash you whiter than snow. So you belong to him forever as his own precious bride, beautiful and radiant. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So are you burdened by your sin and by your guilt this morning? Are you? There's good news for you in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because God can cleanse you from the stain of sin that, that you feel and you know so intimately and deeply in your lives. I want you to hear the words of 1 John 1 verse 7 and verse 9 and the hope that is yours in the gospel. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Praise God. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've never done that, if you've never just spoken honestly to God, maybe with another Christian around you as well, just talking about your sin and confessing it as sin and asking God for his forgiveness, I want to encourage you to do that. So you would be forgiven. So you would know the cleansing power of the blood of Christ for you. If you've done that before and you just need to do it again, do it again and again and again. This is not a once and done thing in the Christian life. This is a confess as long as we live and as long as there is sin to continue to bring it before the Lord and to know his forgiveness and his cleansing power to take renewed hope in the gospel that Jesus is for us, that he forgives us, that he loves us. Grace City, God's grace has appeared and it's brought salvation. It brought salvation that first Christmas. And this salvation changes us for good where we are unable to change ourselves. And that's why Paul could end verse 14 the way he did. Did you notice how it ended? Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, to purify for himself the people of his own possession, who are zealous for good works. So the world wants freedom from constraints, but God has a better salvation for you in Jesus. He wants you to be free from sin and free for a life of good works towards others. So this Advent season, how should we respond then to the grace of God for us in Jesus Christ? Well, first, like we've just said, if you've not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to do that. This Advent season is is a time for you to do that, to come to him and to be saved for the first time. 
Second, Advent is a wonderful time to actually reflect and to be repentant. It's a time to to renounce those things that we've entertained in our lives that are wrong. To turn away from them and to turn again towards Jesus Christ in faith and in trust. To know his forgiveness and to, to take active steps to put that sin to death. Third, the way that God changes us is by his grace. It's by seeing and worshiping and loving and delighting in Jesus Christ. So maybe this is the most important step, actually, in the thing that we can do this Advent season. Look at Jesus. Open up your Bibles and read the stories about Jesus. Come to our gatherings on Sunday and on Christmas Eve and worship with brothers and sisters and praise God. Lift your hands and sing songs of praise. Pray your hearts out in thanksgiving and adoration of Jesus Christ. Because we are changed by knowing him more. That's the way that he changes us. By knowing more of his love and his goodness. So let me encourage you to do that. And fourth, this Advent season, we can respond to the generosity of God in Jesus Christ by choosing in the freedom that is ours to do what is good. See, you're free in Christ if you've trusted in him. You're free. But good works don't just happen. You have to choose to do them. So let me encourage you to begin thinking about what good you might do for one another, for your neighbors, out of love for God because of how much he's first loved you. So you can begin to show his love towards others in practical and meaningful ways this season. God's grace has appeared bringing salvation to all of us. Let's give him thanks and praise together right now. God, I want to thank you and praise you for the way that that your grace has come to us in Jesus Christ. You've not left us in slavery to sin. And you've loved us even when we were the most unlovable creatures on earth. Lord, for those that have tender consciences and are feeling like the, the bruised Uh, reed or the smoldering wick this morning, I pray for them that they would have renewed confidence that you really do love them in Jesus. That you'd strengthen them by your Holy Spirit to reach out again to trust in Jesus Christ. Not because they've got it together, but because they haven't. Because you're so good. Lord, would you use your grace and your power and your love to begin to change them. To help them to be free from the sin that just has entangled them so much. Would you give them courage and boldness to trust not in themselves, but to trust in your word and to put that sin to death in obedience to your scriptures? God, I pray for those that have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ, that they would be challenged to do so. That your Holy Spirit would be at work in their hearts, confronting them and convicting them of their sin. That they would have strength to, to reach out and trust in Jesus Christ by your grace. Lord, we ask all these things We ask that you would inhabit our prayers and our our songs now that we would worship you because you have loved sinners like us and you have transformed us. You are freeing us. You've made us your beloved children. You've purified us to belong to you. Lord, would you fill us with rejoicing and thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.